Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a take on the recent Proud Boys fiasco in Manhattan from a journalist who covered last year's white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, which led to the death of counter-protester Heather Heyer. Well, the fact that this group was invited to speak at the Metropolitan Republican Club is really troubling. Mm-hmm. That this sort of mainstream institution had them there. Plus, a conversation with two Brooklyn-based journalists on what we should take away from the latest UN report on climate change, other than despair. Do I think that we're going to solve the climate crisis and we can wait to solve the climate crisis until after we've dismantled capitalism? No. Hi, and welcome to the show. Just ahead, I'll chat with two reporters on the climate beat, Harrowing times, according to the latest U.N. report, which predicts a dramatic impact on the global population if we don't make some major changes fast. But first, in case people thought New York City was underrepresented when it comes to hate groups, now comes the Proud Boys, a far-right ultra-nationalist group founded in the city, which made a splash this weekend when they were invited to a GOP event and then set about beating the crap out of three Antifa protesters while shouting homophobic slurs, their founder Gavin McInnes brandishing a knife, and a group posing while making white power signs. Police made no arrests at the time, but now say they're investigating and charges may be announced soon. To talk more about actions like these and what resistance looks like, we're joined by Nick Murray, a journalist who covered the Charlottesville March last year. Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for doing this segment. Now, Nick, you were at Charlottesville last year when we saw the Proud Boys out in full Tiki Torch force. But can you talk a little bit about your experience at the march? Yeah, so I'm, I am a journalist, but I actually write more about um, music and culture. And mm-hmm. I, I went down to Charlottesville, where I now live, because I had friends down there and knew what was happening. And I, I didn't expect to write anything. And I, yeah, I was just down on the streets and saw what I think a lot of people were seeing on live stream. And mm-hmm. uh, the Proud Boys, they're, I think, in a, a sort of semi-successful ploy to retain like some credibility with people like the Metropolitan Republican Club sort of at the last minute decided not to endorse the event but they were definitely down there their members were definitely down there with these other groups can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the anti-fascist resistance I think from my perspective everything I saw in Charlottesville was I would call it all anti-fascist resistance Mm. Um, and that includes, and I think that's actually one of the things that really struck me the most being there was that, you know, going down, I kind of wondered, like, will there be tension between the more confrontational anti-fascist people and the more, a little less confrontational anti-fascist people? And I really didn't see that at all. It's like some real solidarity. Like the, the image that stands out to me is in a, a park sort of, a little away from most of what was happening. There was like a uh, group of Quakers were doing sort of a silent prayer circle mm-hmm. while this group, uh, this like armed self-defense group, Redneck Revolt, sort of guarded the perimeter. And to me, I think all of those people were anti-fascist and doing different sorts of anti-fascist action. 
Charlottesville and a lot of the conversations and confrontations that um, have come from the meeting of Antifa and people like the Proud Boys or or other um, hate groups, one of the things that people keep bringing up is, is it okay to hit them? You know, like somebody gets punched, there's a fight, something breaks out. What's your take on, you know, crossing that line into physical uh, confrontation? In most of these instances, I really do think the term self-defense applies. Like, I think a lot about when uh, Milo Yiannopoulos spoke or was intending to speak at University of California, Berkeley, Mm -hmm. and people um, burned things. I don't think there was physical confrontation, but like, like punching, but I think, you know, there's rioting or burning or that sort of thing. And, you know, there's this discussion of whether that's acceptable or not. And then it was revealed later that one thing that he had planned to do in his speech was read a list of undocumented people who were part of the university community or lived in the town. I think stopping that by however they needed to stop that was, was totally self-defense and I think was uh, it's really important and good that they did that. Now, when it comes to a group like the Proud Boys, do you think this is more of a flash-in-the-pan phenomenon, like we're talking about the Proud Boys now and we won't be talking about them in a year, or is this something that's here to stay? I think the thing, when I you know turned on my computer and started reading about this conversation, the thing that was the most disturbing to me is the well the fact that this group was invited to speak at the Metropolitan Republican Club is really troubling. Mm-hmm. That the sort of mainstream institution had them there. And then also I saw what like the Fox News coverage, which obviously we wouldn't expect that to be good. But uh they really misrepresented what happened and I think they said like Antifa strikes again and they you know, as you mentioned, that Gavin McInnes was brandishing a sword, and they sort of implied that protesters had the sword. And to see this group have some sort of backing within the mainstream Republican Party and to see this, you know, major news network really consciously misrepresenting what happened in order to support them made me feel like, you know, this is a deep problem. But I think... It's definitely, yeah, I definitely think it's a deep problem, but I think it, it's possible that we could look back on this as a flash mm-hmm. in the pan, but it's only possible if people stand up and stand together mm-hmm. and really confront it head on, because I don't think it's going to go away by itself. Well, I appreciate you talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. I thank appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Bye. Coming up, two more journalists join us to talk climate change. Climate change. It's not as bad as we thought it was. It's worse. That's according to a sobering new report from the United Nations Scientific Panel on Climate Change that paints a far scarier picture than even previous predictions. We talked about it the other day on the show with New York City's chief climate policy advisor. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, we're running out of time to cut down greenhouse gas emissions so as to keep the rise in temperature within 2.7 degrees. They say if we don't act fast to stem the warming, 
2040 will be the point of no return and the world will suffer food shortages and wildfires. We'll see refugee crises on massive scale. Parts of the globe will become uninhabitable. Coral reefs will only exist in, in aquariums and on and on. To talk to us about these dire predictions, we're joined by two Brooklyn-based climate journalists, Kate Aronoff, who writes for The Intercept, thanks for joining us, and Audrey Lim, who writes for The Nation. Welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So just to get started, Kate, in your recent Intercept article, you write, it will be enormously difficult to do what's necessary to reverse our current course. As far as I know, personally, humans have never done anything anything that's not easy they've continued to do what is easiest <laughs> in most circumstances and in most cases so i want to break this conversation down into three parts looking at things on a national federal level mm -hmm. on like a local municipal level and then on an individual level just to like really help people get in their minds how this affects them when it affects them, where it affects them, and what they can do about it. I think a lot of people are confused about what is or isn't being done in this space. So I want to try to make it a little bit easier in this conversation, if we can, um, because I know it's complicated. But Kate, let's start with you. Uh, so far, the federal response to the report hasn't been particularly encouraging. I would say. What hope is there that the federal government, at least in the United States, is going to take some action? So I think it's unlikely the federal government will take action while Donald Trump is president on this mm. front. And that's sobering, but it's not the end of the world, right? right? So the Trump administration has said that it wants to pull out of the Paris Agreement. It can actually do that for two years. Mm -hmm. And so it, it will still be in that process. It actually approved the IPCC report because of, you know, it would be very odd if it didn't. But I think that's not quite the, the whole story, right? And so there are states, there are cities that are that are sort of looking to amp up their commitments to climate mm -hmm. change. So while the federal government is sort of out of commission on climate for the next two years, uh, I think there there are sort of these subnational actors who are who are taking action. And I think it's important also to put this in an international perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And so the US is about 15% of global emissions. Mm -hmm. China is about 30% of global emissions. And so the US being sort of asleep at the wheel in terms of climate policy isn't, you know, literally the end of the world, both in terms of the fact that, you know, we could have a much more progressive Congress potentially as soon as as soon as November 10th, and we could have a new administration uh, very soon. And so, you know, there are reasons to be hopeful. I think, and and if anything, I think the report actually um, lends itself to to kind of a hopeful analysis. Audrey, can I ask you what kinds of actions are we missing out on taking without the federal government? Because I'm guessing if they are a little bit at the sleep at the will, at least for now, there are certain things that we could be doing that would be immensely helpful. I mean, I think the things that <clears throat> we can focus on is, for instance, like at the state level, like mm. people have talk, talked and the report talks a lot about how important it is to put a price on carbon um, mm. and a carbon tax. And we can't do that. We're, we're probably not going to do that at the federal level. But that's something that we can do at a state level and mm -hmm. that could be is doable in a state like New York, for right. instance. And so we can still push every one of our elected officials mm -hmm. um, to, you know, we say that that's 
like you're not going to have our support in the future if that's not right. a thing that you're going to push for and to push for a very ambitious carbon tax. Um, a carbon tax. Can you talk to me about how that would work? Because, you know, I think people hear something like a carbon tax and um, all they hear is tax. <laughs> like, that's it. And then it's, oh, I don't want any more taxes. They're already taking too much. But a carbon tax, how would that work? I mean, that's basically putting a tax on that's taxing polluters. Mm. So that might be at the site of where like fracking is happening mm -hmm. or at a refinery or a factory. And for every ton of carbon that they produce, they're going to have to pay like a certain price. So like $20 or $100 or $50,000 or whatever. How would that affect my wallet? I wonder about like maybe like plastics or something. You know, that's one of the things that people talk about. Yeah, and, and there are different proposals on the table. And so there are some proposals for a carbon tax which say that um, all of the revenue should go back directly to the people who will be paying the tax. So mm -hmm. to, you know, by some measures, there will be a, a kind of revenue allocation, and everybody will get a check for something like $2,000 a year to offset um, the increased cost of things like gas and airplane tickets. Other models, and there's a there's a proposal in Washington State along these lines, would invest uh, invest the revenue that's generated into sort of green infrastructure. Ideally, the people who are paying this tax and who are hurt the most are the people who are polluting the most, which are fossil fuel corporations. Right. Um, and so, ideally, you know, this will not be a sort of regressive tax where right. folks who are just trying to get to work to get their kids to school are finding themselves, you know, in real sort of financial straits because of it. And there are ways to do that. Is it realistic the carbon tax that it could work and help to push us in the right direction? It's a good question. Um, mm -hmm. It is the sort of go-to policy that people sort of talk about when they mm -hmm. talk about climate policy. I personally am a little skeptical that it would work at the federal level. I think it, on a state level, it makes a lot of sense because states are very revenue constrained um, mm -hmm. and need to just raise money because they can't deficit spend. The federal government has a lot more flexibility in its budget. And so it's not necessarily that we need that sort of revenue stream. Obviously, we should be making polluters pay for what they put in the atmosphere. It's a very mm -hmm. common sense policy. Um, but in terms of what the sort of tip of the spear is to get all of the many, many changes that we need on climate. I don't know if a carbon tax, because of the reasons you mentioned, mm -hmm. because people hear tax, they don't really you know, have an association with carbon. I don't know if that's the sort of leading policy that it should be. There's been proposals for things like a Green New Deal, mm -hmm. um, which would you know, potentially give everyone a job who needs one, um, doing things like you know, making cities more resilient to storms, to you know, upgrading our infrastructure, to, to be able to take in more renewable energy. This all sounds really useful. Yeah. Do you see people or do you hear people really feeling like climate change is going to be a midterms issue for who they end up voting for at the polls? In terms of the midterms, I mean, it's so close and I just mm -hmm. haven't seen too many people talking about it. Right. Um, but I think there are several elected officials who are very likely to make it to Congress. People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, here in New York, Rashida mm -hmm. Tlaib in uh, Detroit, who are running on programs that include a Green New Deal. Um, right. And so I think if it becomes an issue, um, particularly after the midterms, um, it will be because there are sort of champions like, like them really pushing this forward. Right. I like that. Audrey, we had um, the mayor's advisor on climate change here last week talking about, you know, green programming, also the zero waste 
program that NYC is trying to implement, trying to become a leader in sustainability across the world, which we've heard de Blasio talk about quite often. But is it working? You know, how important are these initiatives, not just in New York, but if we're purporting to be a leader in this space, are we doing the work to lead? I mean, I think everything probably helps at this point, mm-hmm. and it is important for, you know, cities to try to roll out, you know, green policies and zero waste policies and things like that. But mm-hmm. that on its own, I don't think it's going to be enough. I mean, right. Uh, I think one of the challenges of the, the climate crisis that is that it calls for like a, a more holistic way of approaching mm-hmm. how we deal with just urban development, economic growth and everything like that. Like in a city like New York, um, luxury housing and mm. construction is a huge, huge emitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that is also causing an affordability crisis. Um, right. You know, it's also taking away uh, green space mm-hmm. um, or, or, you know, waterfront space that could be used for green spaces for communities. And instead, we're building luxury housing. Um, and, you know, I don't see de Blasio taking that much action on that front. Mm. Um, and that is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I don't see the city doing very much on that front, but community groups around New York City um, have been you know, pushing for this like more holistic vision of community development that does a lot more for working people and Mm -hmm. immigrants. I find that very often you have people who fall into two camps, people who are like, when you're in my house, you recycle. We care about the planet. And then there are people who go, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do on a daily basis. My choices at home aren't going to change anything. What do you say to people like that? Um, I mean, it's I think it's it's a complex issue. And it, the answer, the simple answer is that I think it falls somewhere in between. Like our, our lifestyles are very much like based on fossil fuels and creating a ton of waste. And mm-hmm. it's designed around convenience more mm-hmm. than it is about uh, around like sustainability or justice. Right. Um, however, I think there's this idea in the society that we live in today, which is so much informed by like capitalist or neoliberal values, that individual choice is such a big factor in shaping the direction that society goes. Um, mm-hmm. And really like uh, the history of America, the history of the world of New York City, what it shows is that really it's like mass organizing. It's like communities and people actually coming together, not just like all deciding to recycle, but, but, you know, deciding to either push for better policies or to together try to create alternative models of economic growth. So like, you know, to work on building different industries. uh, Right. And to structure, you know, those companies or um, the way that we make decisions in in communities in a way that's like more democratic, say, Mm -hmm. like individual actions uh, are important. But we have to we're all a part of the society that we live in. Right. Um, You know, at the community level, at the local level, at the state level, you know, at the international global level. Kate, do you think environmentalism can thrive under capitalism? 
<laughs> it's a small question. Yeah, I mean, there's been a sort of debate among folks on the, the left and, and sort of center left about this question. I mean, I personally would identify as an eco-socialist, um, mm-hmm. which isn't a word that, you know, necessarily means that much to that many people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the root of it is saying that there is something fundamentally wrong with what we value mm-hmm. in society. Do I think that we're going to solve the climate crisis and we can wait to solve the climate crisis until after we've dismantled capitalism? No, I, right. I think that there are, you know, things that we need to do right now mm-hmm. and in plenty of ways to sort of work with what we've got to change, you know, change in the way that we need to change. So to create huge markets for renewable energy, right? That's something that exists within capitalism, but that's absolutely mm-hmm. necessary. But I think in the long term, there has to be a real reevaluation of um, what we think of as, as, as valuable and productive. You know, whether or not the end result of that looks like capitalism, I think it looks a lot less like what we live in today. Right. And certainly looks, you know, fairer, more democratic and, and gives more people a better quality of life. And so I think that capitalism itself, you know, has really fueled this crisis in a really problematic way. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, it is the world sort of we live in today. And I think it would be a little bit naive to say that we can't, um, you know, we have to wait until we solve capitalism to, to take on the climate to crisis. To take on this next step. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. And now some news. A group of self-proclaimed witches will gather in Bushwick on Saturday to perform what they describe as a punitive hex on the newly appointed Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. We want to get retributive justice, said Dakota Bracciale, who's spearheading the supernatural soiree. Bracciale, a co-owner of Flushing Avenue, a cult bookstore, Catland, and their colleagues will cast the curse in an attempt to seek justice for Kavanaugh's alleged victims and give the judge a dose of the pain and suffering of the women who claim he sexually assaulted them. And according to a local witch, while the goal of a hex is to inflict emotional and sometimes physical harm, invoking it can also lift the spirits of those who come together to perform it. We started the show talking to a reporter about the appearance of a far-right group at a local Republican event. The host of the event, the chairman of the Metropolitan Republican Club, Ian Riley, has defended his decision to invite the Proud Boys last Friday. Turns out, Riley also works for Brooklyn Republican lawmaker Marty Golden. Since July of this year, Riley has received at least 13 payments of $605 from the state senator's senatorial campaign fund, according to the New York State Board of Elections. And a Metropolitan Republican Club spokesperson also identified Riley as a friend and office manager for Golden, according to Brooklyner. So far, Golden's campaign hasn't commented on the issue. Bird is the name, and micromobility is its game. Bird scooters, known in California for scattering dockless scooters around L.A. and Santa Monica, are trying to break into the New York City commuter market. That effort is also being spearheaded in part by City Council member Rafael Espinal, who announced his support for scooters in a daily news op-ed earlier this year, and is currently working with Transportation Committee Chair Adonis Rodriguez to introduce a bill legalizing them. But while scooter companies can stage events and work with elected officials, the issue of safety and aggressively redesigning the city's street is what will no doubt determine how widely adopted scooters become in New York. By the way, Councilmember Espinal will be on 112BK next week, and we'll ask him about those scooters. 
Tomorrow, Jared Murphy gets a look at the pre-election landscape through the eyes of one of the heads of the Working Families Party. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barghi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Assis Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.